The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. I warned Kurt that I get the last word. But uh, then as he hands over the pulpit to me, he says, no jokes. So I will behave myself, but, but what, I, I notice not everybody in the congregation is going to follow my example in doing that. <laughs> it is such an incredible privilege for us to have the opportunity to minister here. Uh, we love this church. We've invested part of our lives here, as well as part of our family here, and uh, we are just incredibly grateful for what God has done. It seems like every time we come back, we're excited to hear what God is doing and uh, some of our friends and uh, uh, co-workers in their lives. Uh, it seems like every time we see somebody we haven't seen for a long time and have the opportunity to catch up what God has been doing in their lives. And then uh, this time, uh, last time we were here was February, which is sort of the time we usually come and didn't work this time, and when we were here last February, I think we were about the first ones in on the secret that Jackie was going to be getting married. Uh, we were, we were, in fact, actually, no, I won't tell you that. Anyway, I did get in on the secret early, and uh, we were excited about that, and uh, so uh, then uh, got to meet Lance's bride this year. And uh, so it's just been neat. We love coming back and having the opportunity to share here. We're grateful for Pastor Steve and what he's doing. And we're especially grateful that he gives me the privilege of participating in ministry here when we come to town. Uh, We are very grateful for that. Now, I've got to tell you that uh, we had one of those providential things happen. In fact, it was a series of providential things and uh, I think only when I speak with, with or in relationship to Pastor Steve am I quite so fluid in using the term providential. He, he's the first one, I think, who has ever sent me an email saying providentially. And what was providential was he asked me if I could do what I've been doing in February uh, and come and preach. And I was glad to do that, except that I'm going to be having my second hip replacement surgery uh, during the time he wanted me to come. So I said, you know, we're planning to come in January, and, you know, so I guess that's out this year, but maybe next year. And he wrote back, providentially, I'm on vacation the week you're going to be there, and the passage that the men are supposed to teach is one that is difficult, and they're a little nervous about, and so I was wondering if maybe you'd be willing to come and step in and do that. And I responded to him, providentially, that happens to be one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I love to preach from the second chapter of Colossians. I think it is one of the most important passages of Scripture uh, we will ever get a handle on. And therefore, there may be a few of you here who were very alert and attent 12 years ago or so when I preached on this passage. Uh, 
and may remember what I said. And if that's so, I apologize to you, but providentially, God arranged this. I also need to clarify as to my sermon topic, how to walk well has nothing to do with the fact that in August I had a hip replacement surgery. (laughs) And in February, I'm expecting another. But uh, that's not what I'm going to talk about this morning. We're going to look at Colossians, the second chapter, verses 6 through 10. And uh, if we could really grasp what this passage of Scripture is trying to tell us, I believe we'd be transformed. Uh, Like I said, it's one of just a handful of passages that I believe we have not gotten into our mental programming to comprehend what God is trying to say to us about how he desires for his people to walk. And I have the privilege of speaking on that issue this morning. Paul, I believe, is dealing with a church that, like most churches in his day, unfortunately, like most churches in our day, are filled with people who have somehow the idea down inside of our minds, our programming is fixed to tell us we can do it ourselves. I grew up with that philosophy of life. In my growing up, when I would get myself into a mess... Uh, I would drop something and break it or do something I shouldn't do. I could always get the pieces put back together again before mom or dad got home and found out what I'd done. Except one time it didn't work. But we have that idea that we can do it ourselves and we have a tendency people in general have a tendency to say that to God. Thank you God, I can handle it now. We're perfectly willing when we face those moments when we can handle it ourselves to say, God, help, I can't handle this. And then God helps us and we turn around and say, okay, God, now I can take it from here. I hope it doesn't shock you too much if I tell you this morning, oh, no, you can't. And the sooner we learn that, the better off we will be. Paul is faced with a people inspired by the Judaizers, the major cult of their day in their community that was telling them that you've got to be good enough, you've got to live by the rules, you've got to do enough good works to somehow satisfy God. And those people were present even within the church, not just out there, but within God's people, the true church. There were people who were thinking that we can do it ourselves. And Paul consistently wants to demonstrate that we can't do it ourselves. And that begins with the doctrine of salvation. When we talk about our salvation, we, we come at salvation getting eternal life as though somehow we can be good enough to earn our way into heaven. If we just try a little harder, if we're just a little better than we were 
last year, or if we're just a little better than our neighbor, we'll be okay and God will be impressed. And Paul wants us to understand that if our salvation depended on us, we are without hope. Now, most of us here this morning, most of us have realized that that doesn't work. Most of us have already come face to face with the fact that we will never be good enough to earn salvation by our own efforts. We've pretty well got that one down. And yet, what Paul was dealing with day after day after day in the church was people who realized that for salvation, for entrance to heaven, that's a gift that's been paid for by the death of Christ. But when it comes to living the Christian life from day to day, somehow we get the idea that we need to do it ourselves. And Paul wants us to understand that even now, having received salvation by faith in Christ, we still can't do enough to please God. We still can't do enough to earn the basis of our own fellowship with God. We're still not good enough to stand before God on our own. So through Colossians, uh, as in Galatians, I believe, those two books in particular deal with people who are struggling with that issue thinking that we can do it ourselves. Paul tells the Galatians in chapter 3, he says to them, "Uh, who, who deceived you? You started well. What happened? You... Let me just ask you a question, Paul said in Galatians. Let me ask you a question. When you began the walk, did you begin by work or by the Holy Spirit? Should be obvious, shouldn't it? We didn't start the Christian walk on the basis of our own works. It was on the basis of faith. It was the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, giving us new life. And then Paul goes on to say, are you so foolish, thinking somehow that if you can start by faith, now you can go on doing it yourself? Who deceived you? Now in the book of Colossians, Paul tells us over and over again, don't let anyone deceive you as though somehow you can make it on your own. So he warns us not to be led astray by false teachers who bring in a different message. Even if that message is wrapped in appealing, logical arguments. Don't let them deceive you. Paul encourages us to keep going through life the same way we began, by faith in Christ. We shouldn't be paying attention to world religions and cults and even Christian churches and and Christian messages, even 
Paul warns us, even teachers from our own church who come along with a message of trying to somehow be good enough to earn God's favor, to get Him to smile at us because we've been good enough. Paul's point through this book, as throughout all of his letters, is that from beginning to end, our salvation and our daily living are all based on faith and on the work of God in our lives, not in our performance, as though we could somehow make it on our own. So this morning we're going to look at one of what I believe is one of the key passages in the New Testament. I believe it's the core of this particular letter to the Colossians. It's basic truth. I'm not going to say anything that you shouldn't have heard many times before. It is that basic. But we need to keep repeating it because we just don't get it. We keep trying to do it ourselves. Peter says in the introduction to to his epistle, he he says, I'm going to go over this again and again and again. Lest when I'm gone you forget. And and this is another one of those messages that I'm going to repeat over and over and over again. Lest when I am gone you forget. So though it sounds repetitive, we're going to look at the same principle again this morning. The book of Colossians is somewhat unusual. Most of the books have, first half of the book is doctrine, the second half of the book is application, doctrine and practice. Uh, This book is organized slightly differently. Almost the whole book focuses on the doctrine. It's a doctrinal argument from the perspective of Paul's call to ministry. And he deals here with his ministry to pagan Gentiles. Now, two quick things I need to point out just to give us a little bit of orientation here because we are so far removed from their day that we don't really understand this business of pagan Gentiles. We don't really understand how Jewish people looked at people like us. In fact, we see the New Testament word that's so often used, Gentiles, and we think there's something gentle about it. You know, gentle, Gentiles, kind of fits together, sounds nice. When they used that word, they were thinking anything but gently. In a Jewish mind, it was the closest equivalent I know to, to how to say it. With a certain tone of your voice, using the word pagans. And when they looked at people like most of us, we were pagans. And yet Paul is excited. He's excited because God has given to him the privilege of being God's voice to pagan Gentiles, to people like us. And this letter explains that. 
How excited he is about that. Uh, Chapter 1 ends by his telling us that he has the privilege of giving a revelation concerning pagan Gentiles, which is that Christ is present, Christ meaning Messiah, is now present in us. Pagan Gentiles, and he is the hope of glory for people like us. People who never deserved it, who never had a chance, who never had a hope, God has declared that His Son, Messiah, the Christ, that Jesus is present in us. And Paul's excited to be able to announce that message. The chapter concludes, verses 28 and 29, uh, that he has the privilege of proclaiming Christ to everyone everywhere so that he might present everyone perfect in Christ. Then when he moves to chapter 2, he begins to talk about his struggle, how day and night he struggles to keep us from being led astray by persuasive arguments. Now, I get to bring us this morning to the conclusion of that section. After he has told them how he struggles to keep us from being misled by persuasive arguments. Verses 6 and 7 is the conclusion. It's the opposite of being led astray. Here's the bedrock foundation of godly living, of how to walk well. Verses 6 and 7 say, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. The conclusion is, we walk by trusting in Christ. We walk the same way we received new life. Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, how did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? You received Him by realizing that you couldn't do it yourself. You realized that you would never be good enough to earn eternal life. And you realize that if you were going to receive that, God was going to have to give it to you as a gift. And Christ died on that cross to take the penalty for our sin, that by trusting in Him rather than trusting in ourselves, we might receive that gift of eternal life. Just as you received Him, continue to live in Him. And This is one of those rare places where I hate what the NIV does to the passage because it translates out walk and puts in live. And somehow I just like the feel of what he's saying when he says, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him. And how's that? Rooted and built up in him. Notice you're not founded, rooted, built up in our efforts, in our capabilities. It's in Him 
that we are rooted and built up. We're strengthened in faith. And therefore, we overflow with, thanks, with thankfulness. So spirituality is the result of faith, not works. Christian life is a walk of faith, not of works. Hard to believe that God offers salvation as a gift. But what leaves me scratching my head, and yet I go there myself as much as anybody else does. It's hard to believe that God offers salvation as a gift, but somehow it's even more difficult for us to believe that we live that way. That God gives us the ability to live the spiritual life as a gift by faith. We live the same way. One writer wrote his own story. He said, one Sunday I made up my mind that I was going to live like a Christian. I was going to become a Christian. Never doubting that I knew what I needed to do. He said, I thought I must leave off this evil thing or that particular habit that I have in order to be a Christian. From now on, I had to do only things that are good. I must read my Bible more. I must pray more. I must work harder. Do good. Live by the rules. Perform well. On Sunday, I started. Sunday, I prospered. Great day. Monday and Tuesday, I almost succeeded. On Wednesday and Thursday, I made some serious slips. And on Friday, I gave up in disgust. So the next Sunday, I went back to church and I started all over again. I thought, "Ah, I know what I did wrong. I'm going to try a little harder this week. You ever had that experience? I'm going to try a little harder this week. I, I know if I just try just a little bit harder, it'll work. I cannot tell you how many times I have had Men in particular come into my office weeping over failure in some area of their life where they've been struggling. They've come to me and talked to me and and we've worked through this and and we have explained that the only way you're going to get victory over this area of temptation in your life, the only way you will ever have victory is if you quit trying to do it yourself and you trust the Spirit of God to transform your life. It's the only way you'll get there. They go out, they come back a couple of weeks later in tears again saying, I blew it again. What happened? Well, I started out really trying hard this time. I tried harder. And I failed again. When are we going to learn solution doesn't come from trying harder? I was in the middle of uh, this man's story. Next Sunday, he began again. 
I thought I knew where I'd gone wrong, so I increased my devotions. I prayed more. I was careful to restrain my evil habits, but I didn't find peace. Then our pastor spoke, and I only remember one sentence of all he said. This man had not yet trusted Christ. He said, all we have to do is take God's gift and say thank you. Went on to explain what it means to say thank you. Our life becomes an expression of gratitude for what God has done. I'd been, he says, I'd been trying to get the Lord to take my gift. I was giving to him my performance. Now I saw that I had to take his gift. That Christ is the one that I must receive. My heart turned to him in gratitude. I took the gift and I've been saying thank you ever since. That's what the Christian life is about. It's not trying to somehow deserve, earn, perform. It's saying thank you for what God has already given to us. I love Larry Christensen's parable about the young man whose father gave him a beautiful new red car incredible sports car, you know, one, one of those kind that you kind of look at and drool over if you're into drooling over cars. It was that kind of a vehicle. And uh, he admired it. He took it with him almost every, well, he pushed it almost everywhere he went. He told everyone, my father gave it to me. It was a free gift. But he never got in and let the car take him to his destination. A free gift from my father. The least I can do is push it. He knew you had to have a red car to be admitted through the gate at the end of the road. But getting it there, well, that was his responsibility, wasn't it? Until somebody came along and fired up the car and showed him that the whole idea of the car is that the car takes him. The father gave him the car that would take him to the destination. That's what this passage is all about. Just like we receive eternal life as a gift by faith, we walk by faith. Verse 7 affirms how we're able to walk by faith. We sort of mentioned the things he points to. We've already put down our roots in him by faith. We're presently built up. We're already being built up in him. We're strengthened by faith, fortified by faith, and the result is that we're overflowing with gratitude. And frankly, we'll never be able to express our gratitude appropriately until we realize how bad off our state is 
until he transforms it. Gives a warning in verse 8. Again, against being taken captive. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. We look at that passage, and we, as with so much of Colossians, we walk away with exactly the opposite message of what Paul is trying to tell us. You see, we, we look at the basic principles of the world and we think, okay, we shouldn't, let, we shouldn't be taken away by the basic principles of the world. So, what flashes through our mind? The world. Worldliness. We don't want to act like the world. So, therefore, we don't smoke and we don't chew and we don't go with girls who do. Thank you for that amen, brother. The only one I got so far today, man. And, and we, we think worldliness. You know, now, I, my age is beginning to show. It used to be worldly things to do where you go to movies. I don't think that anymore. But used to think that, you know. Going to movies, playing cards, uh, all those terrible things that the world does. That's what we used to think when we read, don't be taken captive by the basic principles of the world. Let me tell you something. That kind of thing is not the basic principle of the world. You know what the basic principle of the world is? Thinking I can do it myself. That's what drives the world. We can handle it. We can pull it off. We can do it ourselves. Paul says, don't be taken captive by human traditions, by human philosophy, by empty deception. The Judaizers were into all of those things. And Paul warns us not to be taken captive by those kinds of things. Not to imitate the world's philosophy that we can do it ourselves. Let me paraphrase a few of the world's basic principles for you. One of those principles is God helps those who help themselves. Yeah, and usually that's prefaced by, as the good book says. Uh, that doesn't quite show up in the good, at least not in my good book. I don't know what good book they're reading. But that principle isn't there. Or basic principle of the world is God will love us more if we're good. Or, or, another basic principle of the world, our worth is determined by our performance. Particularly how well we do when we're up front, when people could see us. Galatians tells us that those same rudiments, those same basic principles, were enslaving us. Because we keep trying harder and we keep falling and we're bound and enslaved by those kinds of thoughts. 
They were enslaving us until Christ came and gave us life. And not just eternal life, he gave us new life. A transformed life. A different kind of life. See, legalism, living by the rules, performance, never leads to fellowship with God and to a rich Christian walk. It always leads to slavery. The world wants us to believe that salvation is based on our efforts. If it were, we could save ourselves. If it were, we wouldn't need Christ's death. It was a waste if we can save ourselves. We can't do it. But it is just as true that if we can live godly lives by ourselves in our own strength, we don't need the presence of the Spirit of God and we don't need Christ's work on our behalf. We need them because we will trip and fall flat on our faces. It's, he concludes it saying it's not according to Christ. What is according to Christ? It's realizing that what I could never do, He's done for me. What I still can't do, He does for me and through me. And His Spirit empowers me and enables me to live in a way that glorifies Him. Familiar passage of Scripture doesn't just apply to salvation. It applies to life. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. Okay, one other thing that I want you to really get a handle on is the second part of this passage, verses 9 and 10. And we get lost in some heavy words here and we miss what he's saying to us. Verse 9, he says, For in Christ all the fullness of of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. So God is the full, or Christ is the fullness of the deity, and uh, we have been given fullness. I read that wrongly, and I get the idea that I've had more to eat the last year than I should, and I am full. And my weight shows it. That's not what he's talking about here. The whole idea behind this word fullness is the idea of something which is complete. It's the idea of a full measure. It's the totality of all that is included in that sphere of things that is being talked about. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form means that the totality of God is in Christ. Don't miss that. That's a key theological premise of this passage. It underlines the, the whole passage here. 
all of the totality of God. Everything that God is resides in Jesus. He is God and He lacks nothing. Do you get that? Everything that God is, is present in Christ. He is in no way less than God. He is God. The totality of God resides in Him. Everything that God is, is present in Jesus. Do I need to say it ten other ways? We do. Because we need to let that thought resonate through us. Because we listen to people explain to us how Jesus was somehow less than the Father. And Paul is saying the totality of the deity, the totality of God is in Him. He lacks nothing. Let that sink in. We're ready for one gigantic sila here. Stop a minute and let that penetrate our minds. Everything that God is, is present in Christ. He lacks nothing. Isn't that exciting? You know what? I'm not half as excited about that as I am about what follows. Because that's not the only thing that's complete. You see what verse 10 says? You have been given fullness in Christ. If that word means complete, totality, if all that God is is present in Christ, we have been given what? Hmm? I heard, but I didn't hear. Okay, we've been given God, but, but be, what, what I want us to think about here is if Christ is everything that God is, and He is in us, then we are complete. Do you get that? Christ lacks nothing of being everything God is. Now, I'm not saying we become gods. Especially not in Salt Lake City, I'm not going to say that. This is not saying we become gods. But it is saying we are complete. You see, we tell ourselves, if I could just somehow get something more, I would be better. If I just try a little harder, I'd be so much better. We are complete. We lack nothing. So what's missing? Nothing! Sorry about that. We warned you, Josh. Do you understand the implications of that? God has given to us everything we need to walk well. All we need to do is stop trying to do it ourselves and let Him do it in us. I want to read the next segment of this that just goes on to amplify how Christ has provided everything we need to walk with God. And I'm not going to comment on it. I just want to read it to you. 
You have been given fullness in Christ. You are complete in Him who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the flesh, the sinful nature. That's another one of those places where I think this translation has blown it. Uh, But the flesh, I think, looks at my attempt to do what's right, my attempt to please God. We put off, the circumcision that has been put off is my attempt to do it. In Him you were circumcised, putting off of, let me just put it that way, putting off of our attempt to do it for ourselves. We've been circumcised in Him, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, verse 12. We've been buried with Him in baptism, raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. He has given to us new life. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your attempts to do things, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Peter says the same thing, perhaps fewer words, in 2 Peter 1.3. Says God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Do you hear that? God has given to us already everything we need for life and godliness. We're complete, we're not lacking anything. If we are in Christ, we have it all. The totality of God is in Him. He is in us. The Spirit of God has given us new life. We lack nothing. And facing people who want to enslave us with rules. Paul assures us that Christ is already provided everything we need. We lack nothing. So what difference is that truth going to make in our lives? See, when you come down to the struggle of daily living, I can preach this all day. I can preach this till I'm blue in the face. And some people would say, and he does. But but I can preach this forever. But until we let that thought take control of our minds till we reprogram those garbage-filled computers that we have for brains and and realize what this means for our lives, it is never going to make a radical difference. See, once we realize that God has provided everything we need and the Spirit of God is there, And we can turn to him and say, help. I'll tell you how crass it gets sometimes in my life. There are times when I go to God and say, God, 
I, I know your spirit's there to help me. Today, I don't even want to do what's right. You ever have that feeling? Today, I don't want to do what's right. If I'm going to do what you want me to do, you're not only going to have to give me the ability to do it, you're going to have to change my mind and make me want to do it. Because today, I don't want to do it. Today, I want to do what I want to do. You ever have one of those days? I've had one or two in my life. When we realize that God has given us everything we need, the Spirit of God is there and He is capable of transforming even our thoughts, giving us new life. Then we begin to look at the struggles a little differently. See, in spite of the fact that this is really, this is the essence of the gospel we're talking about here. This isn't some far out doctrine. This is the essence of the gospel. What I could never do yesterday or tomorrow, not to mention right now, what I could never do in my own strength, through Christ, by faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, God can do in us. And yet we find there's confusion everywhere. People still keep trying to help God out. If I don't help God out here, it isn't going to happen. We keep trying to score points with God. We'll never get there. We serve Him not to gain points but as an act of salvation, an act of thanksgiving, rather, expressing gratitude for what he's already given to us. Expressing gratitude because we lack nothing. Everything God wants us to have. Time to get off that treadmill of trying to do it ourselves like the hamster in the cage, just turning the wheel round and round and round, never getting anywhere. Let's enjoy what we already have through Christ. Songwriter wrote, Thou, O Christ, art all I want, more than all in Thee I find. Let's pray. Father, would you somehow Take control of those hard skulls of ours. Clean out the garbage. Help us to realize the incredible greatness of this truth. The theological reality that Christ is God. That he lacks nothing. And that he has provided for us, everything. So that in him we lack nothing. We are complete. Lord, may the Spirit of God transform our thoughts, transform our attitudes, 
Stop the the game that we go on playing, thinking somehow we can pull this off for ourselves. That's That's what we've been raised with. Help us to grasp the greatness of that truth. We are complete in Him. We lack nothing. And Father, I pray that as we go out from here today, we're going to cross paths with some people who are still in the midst of the struggle. May we take good news that what we could never do for ourselves, Christ has done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.